Thank you, Chad. Just to echo what Chad said about today, I'm excited about the church picnic. Um, if we have a pavilion, uh, not if, we have a pavilion uh, provided, uh, Grace has provided that. We have some tents provided. Uh, if you have like a makeshift tent or something like that, bring it. Um, but also don't worry about the heat. Uh, Willis has graciously agreed to fill his mouth with ice and go around blowing on a bunch of people who may get hot. <laughs> Willis, that was very, I appreciate that, man. Thank you. Um, <laughs> God is good. And all the time, we're continuing in our series, the good, bad, and the ugly, and we are talking about the final judge uh, out of the judges, uh, Samuel. And whenever we're reading uh, the scriptures, especially in the Old Testament, because I think it, people make it entangled in more confusion and things like that when you read the Old Testament, what should I do with this, how do I read it? What does it mean for me tomorrow? Like, what do I do about this? You need to understand uh, that reading the scriptures, uh, you'll be reading it as one of these three things or a combination of the three. One is a brushstroke and a full painting. Two is a mirror and three is a window. On a brushstroke, you you get to a passage where it's like a bunch of names and uh, some of you may just skip it. I've never skipped it. He's like, what am I reading all this for? It's like two pages full of names, man. It's like I got a meeting in 30 minutes. I'm trying to be a good Christian and read the Bible, but you're, like, you're, you're cramping my style right now. It's a brushstroke. It's important. It's in there for a reason. And it dwells as a brushstroke in a much fuller painting for a specific purpose that contributes to an object in that painting that helps us to see the full picture. It's important. There's also a window. We have so many debates and so many conversations about different topics and how one should look at it, how one should view it, how one should carry it out. The scriptures act as the window through which we look at this thing. It's the lens that we look into the world. And then there's a mirror where we can see ourselves. We hold the scriptures up to our face. Do I have any sin in my teeth? It's supposed to show us how we ought to behave, what we're currently doing that we shouldn't be doing, thinking that we shouldn't be thinking. It's the means by which we judge ourselves or examine ourselves. Now, something that may be interesting to grasp in today's society is that the idea of being judgmental is actually righteous, it's good. It's abused, but it wasn't meant to be. We think about something like judgment and being judgmental. We have this picture in our mind of someone who's slanderous. I think many of us probably know of the uh, infamous Westboro Baptist Church. If you don't know about Westboro Baptist Church, they make an art form out of just being despicable. Uh, really. They go to military funerals. They go to funerals of known homosexuals, and they go and try and desecrate the funeral, slander the family, picket, yell hateful things um, in, the na- in the name of God. Uh, and so then what ends up happening uh, is people look at that, and they say, that's 
so judgmental. And also, that's the definition of what judgmental is. Therefore, you shouldn't judge. And I have two responses for that. One, that well-known text in Matthew 7 where Jesus says, judge not lest you be judged. He keeps talking after that. The basic principle that Jesus is saying, I'm going to teach you how to judge. It's not that you shouldn't judge. You're going to want to judge on a basis that you don't hold a standard to, you don't, you don't hold yourself to. And if you do that, that's the way you're going to be judged. But how can you judge properly if you're blind? You need to remove the speck from your own eye that you would judge properly. That's the first response to that. The second response to that is if you look at someone who's judgmental and you say, that's so judgmental, that's judgmental. That's a judgment. How do we know that Christians ought not behave like a Westboro Baptist church? Judgment. Good judgment. We talk about the last judge today, and in this passage, we're going to see this juxtaposition where we have to deal with judgments and covetousness. Judgments and covetousness. Samuel, who's the final judge, not only is he a judge, but he is a prophet. He's a priest. And then he also dwells in this voluntary commitment and covenant with God called Nazarite. If you ever heard that term, Samuel, I mean Samson, sorry, with the long hair, was a Nazarite. It's a vow made to God. It exists for a finite time. There's a strict diet, strict disciplines. You abstain from certain things. He's doing all of these things. And he dwells in Israel as all of them, personally as a Nazarite, but unto Israel as priest, prophet, and judge. God gave them a judge because Israel needed it. And it's not something that ended with Israel, but Christians as well exist as judges to the world. But it's abused. And it's not done righteously. And as a result of that skewed idea, we have devalued what it means to judge. I can just imagine Samuel dwelling in some of our 3Ds or communities. I draw that dude Samuel so judgmental, man. This Bible-thumping dude. I mean, he's always pointing back to the Scriptures. Because of this vow, because of this devotion Samuel has to the Lord, there's really no fear of whatever national or cultural mandates that may exist to take him from the narrow path that he's called to be on. Not only does that not exist, because of this devotion that he has in his life unto the Lord, knowing Yahweh personally, there isn't something that can be presented to him from the world where he says, oh man, but I want that. Because he knows it's perfectly fulfilled and satisfied in the Lord himself. Some of us may have made statements about the hypothetical ones regarding Samuel in 3Ds about some people in your 3Ds now. Too judgmental. Bible thumper. Some of us 
may see this unhealthy virtue in being the judger. Meanwhile, what motivates you is an opportunity to be exalted amongst your siblings, to see how low they are and how high you are. So you point out flaws. But then some of us may actually have a desire to see the Lord's heart sought after and followed amongst family. And you have a love for your God and a love for your neighbor in such a way that says, when I see you walking in a destructive path, I'm going to tell you. And I'm not going to allow the fact that I could be despised to stop me because love does that. Some of you may be little Samuels desperately seeking the heart of God. The societal understanding of judgments can't be right because it comes from the scriptures itself in Proverbs 27 that says, Better is an open rebuke than hidden love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Excessive are the kisses of an enemy. You can get kisses from an enemy all day. But the friend who's willing to rebuke you, to put your relationship on the line, it's uncomfortable. It's icky. Nobody wants to do that for fun. It must love you. That's better. And when you love the Lord, it pains you to see those walk away from him and not heed your warnings or heed your beck and call to come back to him. It, 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 it pains you. It sorrows you. It saddens you. Some of you who are little Samuels may have experienced that. We need to understand that a righteous judge has always been an advocate. It's not an opposer. It's an advocate. They stand in the place that God has called them to stand in. To tell them that the kings, the rulers, the pleasures, the gifts of this world will never satisfy you. As a matter of fact, they'll take from you. While the one true king, he gave, continues to give, and does so abundantly. That's what a righteous judge does. Well, this is what I want for us in this. Two main things. I want us to continue to grow in what it means to be admonished in the Lord. That's a healthy practice. It's a spiritual discipline to seek out admonishment. Hey, tell me if I'm straying. Tell me where I'm blind. Tell me how I may be walking away from the Lord in thought and deed. It's a sign of loving him. It brings edification. I want us to be admonished in the Lord and edified to turn away from what the world may be offering us that's enticing us and turn back to Jesus. Number two, I want us to stand firm as righteous judges because there is a fear of being despised when we see people walking towards destruction and we have that hesitancy. Should I say something? Should I say, I don't know. Nah, uh, let them be destroyed. Better them than me. That's not an advocate. I want us to learn to stand firm as righteous judges. 
motivated by God's love and love for neighbor. Rather than to see them turn away from the greatest relationship they've never known. So this passage opens up <laughs> with Cam, uh, Samuel, uh, and he's got some bad kids. But Samuel became old. He made his sons judges over Israel. The name of the firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second was Abijah. And they were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. This is on par. You know, it was funny is that when you read these statements, it kind of is like one action. It's like Samuel has these kids, and then as soon as they become judges, it's like, boom, they're terrible. And I think that's harmful when we read it that way is because it takes a, it, it's meticulous. It's incremental. There are different concessions being made, acquiescences being made. And when we don't know that that's happening in their lives, we don't see it when it's happening in ours. The little compromises we make. It, 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 takes, it, it, does, it can take a long time to get from the left side of the page to the right side of the page. It takes a lot of discipline to remain on the narrow road from the left side to the right side of the page. Just something to remember. But there's something uh, uh, that's being illustrated here. There are some brush strokes here in this passage. One, Samuel, uh, he was trained by a prophet and a judge, Eli. Uh, and Eli's kids were bad, too. His sons broke the law, but to their father, Eli, responded with leniency. That's presented as something bad here. They were judges over Israel, and they're turning uh, away from the law and collecting bribes, and they weren't concerned with justice. They were concerned with themselves. And Eli, who is a judge over Israel, now, now, boys, now, now. Meanwhile, Samuel, who also has sons who broke the law, their father responded once Israel came to them with seeking the Lord. I need wisdom in this. And what you'll see later is that God gives affirmation and comfort. But this is an encouragement to some of you who may be thinking, man, I got some bad kids. Because there's another father with bad kids in this picture. It's the Lord himself. Israel is time and time again referred to as his son. His son breaks the law. Turns away from his, his father's ways. But the son is disciplined. The son is warned. And is ultimately judged by the father. Eli... As a judge, his campaign as judge involved carrying Yahweh as this kind of gimmicky weapon into battle towards the nations and towards the people. Carrying Yahweh in the tabernacle, then their battles like, yeah, look, you can't mess with us. Look what we got. And the tabernacle gets stolen as a result of that. What a campaign. Samuel's campaign involves carrying Israel back to Yahweh. It's very different. What a burden, though. The Lord's children at this point had no knowledge of God. Even Samuel's sons, it says, turned aside, didn't walk in their father's ways. They no longer desired the Lord. 
Israel comes to Samuel and they say, uh, behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now, appoint to us a king to judge us like all the nations. What's very interesting is, one, they have this deep concern with the fact that Samuel's sons don't walk in his ways. So I wonder if they ever thought what, where Samuel got his ways from. I think we can relate to that a little bit. We can, we can see the failures of man, humanity, and say, oh man, what a failure that is. Give us the successes of another human. I need to look to the instruction and the guidance and wisdom of another human to fix this. It's foolish. They don't even understand. They're so far away from the Israel of old, the Israel that witnessed so much, the Israel that the law was handed to, that they've lost sight of what it even means to be godly. Not only that, they desire a king, not for righteousness sake. They didn't say, hey, your sons don't walk in your ways anymore. Give us a king who will rule over us so that we can walk in the knowledge of the Lord and, and his statutes and, and bring glory to his name. No, no, no. They're pretty explicit. We want to walk, or we want a king to rule over us so we can be like the nations. We're starting to see how that, re, that cycled uh, phrase that Pastor Matt mentioned and judges, like once again, they did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord. Once again, they did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord. Remember, it can take a lot of small concessions to get from, and once again, they did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord. It's not just a page flip. It's a lot of lacking self-discipline. It's a lot of compromise. It's a lot of little desires to be like them over there rather than the kingdom of priests. They were called to be. Something we can learn from this section of the passage is, hey, train your children in the knowledge of the Lord. God told them explicitly in Deuteronomy, hey, he told Moses, tell them, teach them to teach their children. Put it on the doorpost. Put it in the front lip between your eyes, on your right hand. This is a sign of loyalty and devotion. And this is why you're going to need to do this, because the land I'm about to give them is dope and guess what they didn't build it they didn't even toil for it so while they're enjoying this land flowing with milk and honey they're going to forget about me they're going to come up with justifications for why they forget about me too and they're going to be so full and satisfied off of the milk and honey they're going to think that the decisions they're making are harmless and everything's all good. Teach your children about me. Psalm 127 refers to children as a weapon of warfare, arrows. Because it's understood that you train a child in the knowledge of the Lord and they grow up to be a thorn in the side of evil itself. Training them on what forgiveness is, training them on what grace is, training them on what generosity is, training them on what truth is. 
That's committing violence against darkness. Train your children. And whether as a parent or as a man or woman seeking to live a biblical, faithful life, it's hard to see those you love not heed your warnings. It's difficult. It's frustrating. It's hard trying to wade through the waters of being disliked and hated. It's like, hey, I don't want this contention. I don't like conflict. Look, I'm a peaceful person. Let me dispel that real quick. If you see someone you love doing something that's destructive, whether physically or spiritually, and you don't uh, approach them because you claim you're peaceful, it's not. You're selfish. There's a difference. It's selfishness. Samuel, he's a judge, and he was called to do something that every single one of us was called to do. That's a pattern of the scriptures. You see that Israel has specific priests called to the office of priests. Those priests acknowledge that Israel has a great high priest. We all acknowledge that now over them. But then all of Israel is called a kingdom of priests. The great high priest is the priest to Israel. Israel is a priest to the nations. It's the same for us today. Whether priest or shepherd or pastor, whatever it is, we are all still called to serve as a righteous judge, discerning for the nations, for the world, what is good, what is true, what's noble, what's praiseworthy, what's morally um, excellent. But we fear doing that, and that's real. I think it would do us good to actually talk about that more openly and honestly. It's like, man, I got a conversation with my coworker, and I'm afraid. What if we would pray with each other in that moment and console each other, comfort each other in that moment? I don't want to be hated. There's something beautiful about the Lord's response. When it comes to Samuel's frustrations as Israel's coming to him, he's been their judge and he's been trying to guide them and carry them back to the ways of Yahweh. And their response is like, nah. And the Lord gives him some comforting words. You might have heard it in a rom-com or something like that. Samuel, it's not you. It's me. Behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge. Samuel prayed to the Lord and the Lord said to Samuel, obey their voice. Obey all that they say to you. They haven't rejected you. They've rejected me from being king over them. I gotta, as someone who has been toiling over a people out of love for them, willing to be the one being despised, willing to be the party pooper, willing to be the one who's raining down on the parades, it's like, oh man, we just built this calf, man. We can't worship this thing. And now finally, they're just so explicitly turned away from Yahweh. I can only imagine Samuel thinking, what did I, what did I do wrong? Maybe I should have said something at this point, too, or maybe I didn't say enough. 
Maybe I said the wrong thing. Was I too harsh? I probably shouldn't have brought that up. I probably should have waited. Who should I have spoken to? Should I have spoken to this person? I've defamed my calling as judge over Israel. And though it doesn't change the reality of Israel turning away, it's comforting to know that the Lord says, hey, it's not you, it's me. Not only does he say, it's not you, it's me. But what he says to them is, listen to the people and everything they say to you. They've not rejected you, they've rejected me as their king. They're doing the same thing to you that they have done to me. That's fellowship. I find it very weird that Paul always talks about Jesus' suffering as fellowship. Can you imagine brothers and sisters in the church after being at their schools or at work or wherever else in the world and, and they're just being faithful, they're loving people, they're loving people in ways that may bring conflict sometimes and then we come back to one another and we're like, man, I know. I know. God himself says this. The way that you feel right now, I've, I've gone through that. Listen to them, but solemnly warn them. The Lord is better than us at dealing with rebellion. We can have encouragement in that. Because he bore on himself more than we could ever bear. That's why on a daily basis, minute by minute, second by second, we can actually lay our sins on him. He can have a broken heart, but his will to love unconditionally remains intact. Sometimes when our heart breaks, we're like, mm, I don't know. I'm not fixing food today. I'm not buying you this gift today. But his will remains intact. Israel is turned away. And the Lord relents. He says, listen to their voice. C.S. Lewis, he said, there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. Without that self-choice, there could be no hell. No soul that seriously and constantly desires joy will ever miss it. Those who seek, find. Those who knock, it is opened. He wrote that in The Great Divorce. I have conversations about very hard topics often. I don't seek them out for some reason. The Lord has just placed that in my life. Something I always ask people, it's Christians, it's a different type of conversation for a non-believer. But for Christians, whether it be on abortion, sexuality, money, marriage, whatever it is, 
what's driving the way you view this? Do you have a heart that says, Lord, take what I am doing and thinking about this and thy will be done? Is that your desire to see the Lord's will done? Because I promise you, when he tells you that your will is now allowed, that's judgment. We see that in Romans. It says he's given people over to debased thinking. I think it would be good for us to pause and try to examine and see what aspect of my will have I exalted and do I want to see flourish? And have I neglected what the Lord's will is? But through it all, the Lord remains loving. See, that's why we can get into the tensions of this as believers. Man, what a privilege that is to actually have the scriptures expose our hearts purely because we've been wiped clean, called perfect, righteous. Who are we to hold that to ourselves? The Lord remains loving. He grants Israel an opportunity to be warned. <laughs> Some of those warnings, listen to them. These are the rights of the king who will reign over you. He'll take your sons. He'll put them to use in his chariots and his horses and running in front of the chariots. He can appoint them for the use of commanders of thousands or commanders of fifties. He can take a tenth of your grain. I'm skipping through this a bit. It's pretty long. He can take a tenth of your grain and your vineyards and give them to his officials and servants. He can take your male servants, your female servants, your best young men. He can take a tenth of your flocks. Take, take, take. And Israel's like, yeah, we want that. That sounds good. Israel says that we want a human king. Now, we see in this context, the Lord's immediate response was Samuel, obey their voice. They've turned away from me, and they've been doing it since I brought them out of Egypt. But for those of us who have the privilege of having the entire scriptures, we know that the Lord's final response was when Israel said, give us a human king. He said, all right, I'm on my way. Loving. Long-suffering. We need to understand why Israel would even turn away to begin with. There's a di uh, danger in discontentment. I think if you grew up uh, as a Christian or if you've been a Christian for a long time, you can understand that concept, principally speaking. Uh, but in real time, it's, <laughs> we seem to be a little blind to it sometimes. But the discontent are ultimately are blind. You, when you are discontent, you are blind. Because discontentment is desiring that which has already been possessed in the first place. You just don't see it. And then you look out and you say, oh, look at that, man. I want that. There are examples. All the way in the front of the Bible. In Genesis 2, we can see that God was creating trees and plants, and it was described as trees that are beautiful and they're good for food, for the plucking, an abundance right there. 
And you flip to the next chapter, and Eve is looking at a tree like, man, that's beautiful. And that's good for food. I want that. Blind. She had that already. Adam had that already. Yet they were discontent. 1 Samuel 8, 19 and 20, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. They listened to all the warnings and they said, no, 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 no. We want a king who will rule over us so that we may be like the nations. And then listen to what they said. That the king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. What? You mean a king that could possibly, I don't know, listen to your voices from the heavens after 400 years and then break the shackles of bondage in Egypt? A king that will rain down plagues on all of Egypt so that even their false gods know? Oh, we're not messing with them. A king that's going to bring you to a sea and split it open? A king that's going to bring you into a land without you having to lift a finger to, to cultivate it? You want a king like that? They can't even see all that God has done for them. They've forgotten it. They can't see right in front of their face that God hand-plucked them as his people. And they're oblivious to God's faithfulness through it all. A, a personal thing for me, uh, I, 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 I kind of get frustrated today in 2022 when the church is being slandered about slavery. Hear me out. Evil. Prolific. It was even supported by those who profess to be Christians. But that's the only thing we always talk about. Hello? I don't have any shackles on. It was abolished. Not only was it abolished, believers fought and died trusting in the Lord to get this abolished. The church and the Lord, faithful in ending this. We don't celebrate about that. But we're like Israel. We can look at the failures of man. Sam, your sons are trash. Give us a human king. And then we look at the racism that's been prolific in this country like, man, our predecessors are trash. Give us more human philosophy to how to deal with race relations. Give us more human wisdom, more human systems. Samuel tried to carry a people bringing them back to the Lord. And through Jesus, he came to the people. Samuel had a burden of trying to carry an entire nation towards righteousness. Jesus brought righteousness to people. Sam is good. Jesus is better. The danger of discontentment. When you're discontent, you run away from that which you truly desire. Whatever's being presented to you from the world, 
that's telling you, hey, if you only had this thing, you'll be fully satisfied. It's lying. Not only is it lying, it's just going to take and take and take. And I've listened to the, the testimonies of uh, rich and famous people who talk about depression and despair. Because they had their eyes set on this thing that they wanted. That's the coveting aspect that's kind of celebrated in today's culture. Anything you want, you got to go out and get it. You got to be a go-getter. But if you are a go-getter, before you get the thing, you have to be a go, I want that-er. And that's what's going to sustain you. This thing that you have placed your focus on and you just, it's what's driving you is, I want that. I want that. And we forget about all the things that have been forsaken along the way just so we can get that. And then what happens to a lot of people is the Lord says, obey their voice. Give it to them. I think it's a gift when you can get it and then realize, wow, this isn't fulfilling. It's not satisfying. Ecclesiastes says that eternity has been placed in our hearts. That's a big, gaping hole. A dollar bill is just going to fall through it. A marriage. A job. Are you lacking? And what is it that you think you're lacking? We can truly be lacking in certain things, but the lie is that the thing that we need exists in the world. Identity, comfort, status, wealth, pleasure, security, forgiveness, peace. People have actually been led and celebrated in believing that that big piece of discontent they have with their even physical body is found in more physical body. Wealth gives you status. Paul says that we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing adopted as sons through Christ. Forgiveness that heals. Don't turn to the world seeking these things. Because it'll be as if you're throwing the sweet fruits of Eden out in exchange for rotten fruits of the wilderness. Everything that we need possessed in Christ so even as we enjoy the things of this world lacking them doesn't leave us hopeless we're still satisfied and when you see people chasing the rotten fruits of the wilderness love them enough to tell them let's pray Father, give us eyes to see that you've placed a pillar in this world, a buttress of truth to the world that is blind and dwelling in darkness. Lord, forgive us for looking at them dwelling in that darkness and saying, better them than me.
Forgive us in finding joy in that we can show the world that we're not in darkness by highlighting the fact that they are. And send us in the fellowship of our King to enter into darkness, to drag them out. If there are bumps and bruises, if there's despise, if there's hatred, if there's conflict, let us rest in you, Lord. Be comforted by you, Lord, knowing that we share in what you've done for us. Break our heart for what breaks yours, Father. And give us eyes to see that through Christ we have been fully satisfied. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Every week, we're being reminded of the fellowship we have with our King, the preeminent one who came into the darkness and had his body broken on our behalf. That's what the bread is. This is not about making the right decisions. At the end of the day, what C.S. Lewis said is, there are those who will be with God and those who won't. And the reason why we preach this is because whatever you think hell is, I guarantee you it's eternally worse. And the beauty is, whatever we think presence with the Lord is, it's eternally better. And we should desire it for everyone. His body was broken for us. Our bodies deserve to be broken. His was. And you may continue to live thinking you have a broken body, but we take the cup to be reminded of though our bodies may still be broken in this world, in the next life, it'll be perfect, conformed to the image of our King. And our status, even with broken bodies, today is righteous and perfect because the blood washed us clean. That's what we sing about. And be reminded of that. If you are a believer, take the bread and the cup, confess to the Lord the things of this world that you have said and coveted, and be reminded that you are fully satisfied in him. If you are not a believer, consider what it means to have your will be granted to you. And I urge you, that the Lord's will is much better. Choose him, seek him. Good news is, if you want him, you have him. Let's take, eat, and drink.